0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Mashid Mayar, an assistant professor of American Studies at Bielefeld University, and the incoming professor uh, of American Studies at University of Cologne. Mashid has, has just published Citizens and Rulers of the World, The American Child, and the Cartographic Pedagogies of Empire with the University of North Carolina Press. Citizens and Rulers of the World Recovers How American Children at the Turn of the 20th Century Navigated Knowledge About World Geography in the Shadow of the Rapidly Expanding American Empire. Welcome to the show, Mashid.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: To begin with, this book triangulates a relationship between the contested formations of empire, childhood, and cartography. Did you always know this would be the structure of your work And can you discuss the evolution of this project? Yeah, thank
1: you for this question. I guess uh, that actually takes me back over 10 years um, to the time when I was an MA student and uh, I um, worked on a project for my MA thesis, which um, looked into the question of globalization through US history. And um, in that project, I was zooming in at the end of the 19th century, so roughly the same time period that I am looking at in my book. And what I did was I looked at That's the question of Americans imagining the world as becoming smaller and smaller because the um, scope of and the range of the influence, the territorial expanse of U.S. empire was expanding at the same time. So I was looking at these two forces, bringing the United States closer and closer to the world at a moment um, that the United States was um, expanding overseas. Um, In order to explore these ideas, I was looking at a lot of um, magazines and different uh, types of written media at this uh, time period but then when i moved on to uh, the phd program at the history department so uh, moving away from american studies landing in um, history what i did was i actually uh, focused a lot um, on a specific age group which is children and i also sharpened this um, idea of cartography out of the um, spatialized understanding that I was trying to get at in my um, MA thesis project which was looking at a smaller world and expanding U.S. empire at the same time and so then cartography actually uh, moved gradually to the center of um, my thinking about uh, U.S. empire at um, the turn of the 20th century and uh, um, what was added to it through the figure of the child was starting to think about the question of education. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with the late Amy Kaplan, and uh, um, she uh, actually brought to my attention the work of um, uh, Professor Patricia Crane, and uh, what happened was that I actually began to look more and more into the question of childhood and the um, fraught relationship between children and empire, and also between childhood as a concept and empire as a power constellation that was being contested at this time. So a lot of different forces came together, basically, and different conversations that I had. So that I, I moved from a um, general skeleton, really, to a, a more complicated anatomy of the question of empire at this point.
0: Can you sketch out the scholarship that you're engaging with? What's the state of the field, and how do citizens and rulers of the world fit in?
1: Yeah, so there's actually a lot of scholarship
0: on um, historical
1: childhood, particularly in relation to um, the United States, what it meant for children to um, learn what it means to be an American, being pre-political members of a state that um, identified often as a young nation and later on as a young empire. So the idea of youth is, of course, there when you think about uh, the U.S. empire, but also the um, United States as a nation in the 19th century. And that, of course, necessarily means that children are a presence, even if uh, not centrally in a lot of these conversations. And of a lot of, of American historians and Americans, studies. um, Colleagues have written about um, childhood in relationship to empire, childhood and projects of education and pedagogy in general. For example, um, Karen Sanchez-Epler, with whom I had the pleasure of working, um who's at Amherst College and her wonderful book which is the very first book that I bought actually as a graduate uh, graduate student um when I started my PhD um that the book is called Dependent States and there she has this brilliant chapter which is called Raising Empires Like Children and even the title of that um chapter is actually very thought-provoking because it is not about um what's role and place childhood has uh, um, in empire, but actually what empire and studies related to the question of empire actually owe to childhood studies and to the figure of the child. Um, Misha Honek has a book that came out in 2018. It's called um, um, Our Frontier is the World. And there he looks at uh, Boy Scouts movement and uh, how um The Boy Scouts and also the Girl Scouts movement was actually an imperial uh, project, which uh, was um, writing... Um, fun and playfulness and patriotism into childhood as a project that was uh, very much um, at the center of um, the imperial projects at the end of the 19th century. Jeff Fowlersocks, who has written a book um, in 2013, um, focuses in in his book um, Raising Germans in the Age of Empire um, about childhood in um Germany actually, and uh, um, looking at childhood in the classroom, outside the classroom, around the campfire, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and of course, uh, there are all um, these. Um geographical and spatialized conversations about the question of childhood um, in 19th century, early 20th century United States, work by um, um, Martha Donkner and Susan Schulten, who talk about cartography in relationship to politics, and then um, both of them have chapters in which they extensively discuss the idea of uh, childhood and particularly uh, pedagogy and cartographies of childhood. Um, mm-hmm in conversation with politics. So there's a lot out there actually, and uh, um, I have learned so much from them and it has been an exciting imaginary conversation, sometimes also real conversations with Nisha Honek, with um, Karin Suchus-Effler, and Martin Bruckner, but a lot of them actually through books. And I thank books in the um, acknowledgement section of my book because um, I learned so much from these people without them knowing me.
0: Thank you for that, yeah. Um, Citizens and Rulers of the World uses a broad range of primary sources from Nathaniel Dwight's 1795 geography primer for children to magazines marketed to children such as St. Nicholas and Harper's Young People. How did you select your archive? How did you go about putting together the sources you would examine?
1: Well, that is a question about how itinerant uh, academics are, basically, especially historians, because um, before um, doing this project, I had always heavily relied on published works, and uh, I was doing American studies, which is kind of a different field, really. But once I started to uh, look at myself as a historian, and over the years, what happened was that I really learned that spending time in the archives means of Being always ready to uh, have your uh, intentions modified by accidents. So um, there are a lot of verbs that come to my mind uh, when when I think about how I actually selected um, or put together this archive. And uh, uh, that is, um, I was roaming about, having conversation with people, standing in line at the Library of Congress to grab coffee, and striking a conversation with a total stranger. Um, talking to um, professors at different universities, reading books, and beginning to ask whether this is a direction to explore would I find something at that collection? Um, and it really was this journey that was both digital and online because um, I didn't have access to so many uh, resources and I couldn't travel frequently to the US, but also a lot of material that I had to digitize myself because um, back in time, at least in 2010, when I started this project, um, a lot of sources that were specifically directed toward children were not digitized. So I spent three months at the Library of Congress um, in one go. And um, I digitized um, tens of thousands of pages of um, children's magazines. And uh, same at um, Princeton University at the and Children's Library. Again, a few years later at the International Youth Library in Munich, um, ordering books, uh, asking for uh, catalogs, <laughs> In the hope that I will actually find out more, trying to actually sit with the gaps in my understanding of an image which was very broad. And it's necessarily meant that there were so many spots on it that I was not sure about. Not many people have really explored that archive, looking at children's own writing Children's own geographical uh, puzzle production practices. So that meant a lot of uncertainty that they had to um, take stock of.
0: You make the case that knowledge about world geography in the eighteen nineties and the first decade of the nineteen hundreds was tied in with the project of securing the future of an American empire. At the same time, these maps invited a, a degree of personalized intimacy and allowed for users to contend with officially endorsed geography. Can you talk with us about how knowledge about the world was made and the purposes to which geographically scripted material was, were put?
1: Thank you. Yeah. um, Well, in general, of course, thinking about geographically scripted material, we um, automatically think about maps, um, official maps that were produced in the the cartography workshops of the state. And they were produced in order to um, give people an idea of um, what it means to occupy a space. Among so many other nations around the world, especially at a time when, when Americans were actively considering what it meant for them to be in and of the world. So this is a moment of um, uh, searching for uh, the place that the United States has on world maps. And as I explore in the, the um, beginning chapter of my book, um, it's a really interesting trajectory that American um US produced maps are actually following at this point in time, trying to gradually move the world maps that are uh, printed, included in school books, for example, um, so that the world map centers on the Americas. Uh, because over the course of the 19th century, this is not the case. And more often, this happens at the end of the century that um, maps are printed in which uh, the United States is basically at the center of um, the Mercator projection. And um, again, this happens a lot in um, American um, school books of the time. And I was looking at this, asking myself what this centering of the world on the United States actually means for Americans' sense of um, national identity, of belonging to the world, but also being an empire that um, is um, shifting its scope of influence um, across the globe. So this is the official part, this is the um, beginning point, actually, of um, what it means to engage with, but also produce geographically scripted material. But then there are so many other uh, instances of um, such uh, material, and uh, that includes uh, memoirs and uh, letter writing, so epistolary relationships, that uh, also involves board games, um, dissected maps that children could play with including also you know playing um with their um, parents or older siblings so there's a whole lot of unofficial but commercialized geographically scripted material that children specifically had access to and um they could learn about who they are as future citizens of um, an empire that was um, expanding its um, imperial ambitions, but also uh, in response to which they could, children themselves could actually sit and imagine who they are, where they are on the map of the world. So as I explore in the second part of the book, I uh, looked at um, examples of how children playfully but very earnestly at times – wrote about their journeys to different parts of the world gave accounts of uh, encountering um, non-Americans non-whites um, in quarantine stations or if um, um, they learned about them in um, school how they um, developed a language which was very spatial very much about geography about the boundaries of the nation about the idea of home and then who belonged to it and who was excluded from it um, also children uh, designed and um, had uh, geographical uh, puzzles printed in juvenile periodicals of the time. And the two that I look at is specifically Saint Nicholas and Harper's Young People. And um, they would print child-manufactured puzzles that were all focused about, um, on geography. And uh, uh, they are fascinating uh, geographically scripted material in which um, what you encounter is a lot of... Um, hesitation and fascination with the idea of the world at the same time. And um, you can look at patterns that's These children's understanding of world geography um, followed, and how they consumed this um, very prominent um, pedagogical method of home geography, which meant that um, looking at world geography consists of an endless number of home or local geographies. And it was this comparative method of making geography fun, but also understandable and tangible for children. So children engaged with the idea of home. their letters and geographical puzzles. And that's a whole category of super interesting, very generative, um, but also really short and heavily edited uh, texts that children themselves produced.
0: That is really fascinating, and I'd I'd like to um, explore that a little bit further. Um, One of the chapters focuses on geographic puzzles during a period of, of the 20th century Um, which you identify as the puzzle and game hysteria uh, moment. Uh, Can you tell us how the labor that children put into puzzling out geographic maps uh, interacted with the the kinds of child play generated through these puzzles?
1: Yeah, gladly. Um, That was one of the the most fun sections of the book to write, actually, because um, I was thinking a lot about... um, The imaginaries at work, also for me as a historian of the US, trying to get close to the figure of the child, excited, breathless, bored, amazed, um, trying to put whatever they had learned at school into use uh, when they were playing with uh, dissected maps, and um, also theorizing my understanding of what was going on. So there's a lot of speculation that I have uh, tried to actually make sense of through um, engaging with the figure of the child as a, a reinscriptive cartographer, meaning that um, children played with dissected maps, which consisted of uh, fifteen hundred, sometimes many more pieces of a geographical whole, a map that um, manufacturers such as uh, McLaughlin. Brothers uh, would um, just uh, chop into pieces, mount on cardboard, and uh, um, sell in um, nicely decorated uh, boxes to parents, who would then gift it to their children. And uh, so, children would encounter the map of the world, or map of the United States, or um, um, map of the Philippines after the Philippines actually um, became under U.S. imperial influence um, in. 1898, and what they encountered was not one map but many maps. They were really, really small and uh, their edges would fit into one another, but at the same time, they would worry so much uh, about how they would come together. So uh, for children, these small maps mattered as much as the whole. sometimes even more because uh, they had to complete the puzzle by making sure that the edges actually fit one another. It was not that much about the, the whole, the entire map that um, they were trying to um, put together with the pieces that uh, mattered in um, production of that hole, actually. And that is a whole fascinating level of engaging with geography, which is tactile, visual, and also playful. And um, these dissected maps were meant to um, keep children silent as um, the uh, brochure enclosed in one of the boxes of a dissected map uh, explicitly um, mentioned as a, a bonus to having children play with these games that they would be kept um, as silent as mice because the idea was that children have so many hours after school what do they do? They go outside and play or if you want to keep them in the safety of home then they can play board games or um, uh, with dissected maps and um, they can in in the silence of their play, also relearn about American geography, about world geography, and then up imagine where they are um, on the uh, map of the world. But then, of course, there are all these um, challenges to the idea of a dissected map at the same time because um, a lot of these dissected maps were one sided. And uh, so children could draw something on the other side, which was blank, and then play with that uh, image of, I don't know, their family or another image that they could stick to it with glue instead of um, engaging with uh, the um, map of the world. But at the same time, um, still um, the map side was there. It was present and uh, it was meant to actually um, help them rehearse what they learned at the um, uh, classroom uh, within the perimeters of home.
0: I like to talk about the writing process for academics. I, I, I for one, uh, emulate the academic writers that I admire. I keep a running list of, of sentences from monographs that I admire or articles that, that I enjoy reading. Um, for you, um, how do research projects come together? Uh, what are your ultimate goals as a stylist? Um, what are your tactics as a writer, as a reviser? Are you a part of a writing group or a workshop?
1: you <laughs> Thank you for this question. Well, I definitely agree with the example that you uh, just mentioned. Um, I also do that. I have a notebook and uh, I uh, keep a list of an expanding list of um, sentences, uh, even academic verbs that I think like I am not using often enough in my own writing. And I also always uh, suggest it to my students, especially uh, because I uh, teach and work in Germany. I constantly remind my, my students that it is okay to actually do that as non-native speakers of English. So I'm happy to hear that you, you do the same thing. Um, I am always very much focused on the question of uh, um, elegance when I write. Because in another life, I'm a poet. And that means that um, I smuggle um, ideas and sensations, ways of using language, thinking about different um, arguments, which are very much literary. And of course, over the years, I um, had to um, encounter this as not necessarily always a positive thing that I do, um, because I was joining a camp of scholars, namely historians, who had a different understanding of how arguments should be built, how evidence should be brought in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, for me, of this past decade, has been a journey in um, coming to terms with the two faces that I have. one being um, someone who is fascinated by creative writing and uh, does that a lot for herself, also recently publishing a bit of um, that poetry. And the other side, someone who, as an Americanist, um, has a book out, which is a cultural history of uh, the United States. And um, finding the, the balance between these two has never been easy. But really interesting to explore. So I don't write the way I wrote 10 years ago when I um, finished my MA thesis, for example. That is a more pleasurable read I would say than um, what I produced later on in different um, chapters of my book uh, scholarly articles that I have published and so on because um, I tried to be more and more and more precise and use less flourish in in my uh, writing style ultimately of course um, I am one of those um, writers who keeps revising endlessly basically and I have smuggled back in some of my favorite ways of writing, a particular the um, acknowledgments um, to my book, I think is a pleasurable um, piece that I have written, um, where I, I am the closest to um, my usual writing style. But um, going back to academic writing, and um, again, how the, the different chapters actually came together. Um, I always gave myself deadlines. Um, which were very real and coming from outside, not from my committee, but from um, different conferences and workshops and summer schools that I attended. So I would intentionally choose um, different events that were important to my work, uh, to uh, the the general field in which I was thinking about the United States, uh, but also at, at intervals. So I always had uh, deadlines for myself to um, push me to produce more text and also uh, to engage with different groups of people who were thinking about similar or dissimilar projects, uh, questions, time periods, and trying to connect my line of thinking, my arguments, whatever I was writing to that group of people, trying to help them understand what I was working on. And that meant having a million different summaries for my project that I thought would actually make sense in that summer school or at that annual convention. And that also meant producing constantly. So um, I wrote not in one go. I didn't block year and a half for writing at the end of uh, my time as a um, doctoral researcher but basically throughout time I would just write drafts and then go back to them after a couple of semesters uh, going yet again to another conference and trying to mature the text by revising it so I am a master reviser, I would say.
0: Well, let me say, you know, the poetic sensibility and the emphasis on elegance that that you you talk about comes through in the book. It is it is a pleasure to read, um, for sure. Um, the uh, you know one of the things I was struck in, uh, by in in doing some of my research is the titles of your courses, which are very compelling. Um, you you have offered uh, courses titled "The Verbs of Empire" and. Uh, Another course, Silence in U.S. History and Culture. Um, This book, um, The Citizens and Rulers of the World, is invested in the ethics of education and pedagogy. How did your own teaching inform this research project? And how did working on this project affect your approach to teaching?
1: That's a brilliant question. My answer to which is um, I am a completely different teacher now than I was when I started this project, because through looking at childhood, not in terms of age, but in terms of access to power and um, access to political power also, I began to reflect a lot um, about it means to be a student. So one of the many phases of childhood that I um, explicitly explore in my book is um, children as students. And um, by Getting close to that figure, which is really elusive, um, has not been reconstructed that often in um, historical work so far, because um, either the focus has been on school books or on, on test results or um, records that um, schools kept rather than what children themselves actually produced. Not much has been said about um the American child, the student, and in general, the child as a student, at least in the the work that I have explored. And that means that going through um, the material that I was um, working with for writing uh, my book, I began to develop a very different relationship to the idea of childhood. And at some point, I even wrote a letter to the editor of St. Nicholas in the very way that uh, children in the 1890s, well, over the course of the um, uh, uh, final quarter of the 19th century, wrote to to Saint Nicholas. So I. Uh, wrote a letter addressed to dear Saint Nicholas and I wrote about how I always wanted to go to the kindergarten but for a variety of reasons it wasn't possible and how heartbroken I was as a child and then on the other side of the same page I wrote a letter to dear Saint Nicholas as an Americanist, an adult, uh, saying that. This is the year 2012 or 13, I believe it was. And uh, um, I am researching you. And uh, this is my position. This is my relationship to childhood, actually. So um, coming back to the question of teaching, I think occupying these different positions and getting close to um, the image of the child as a quote-unquote minor member of society in general. Um, Also made me more and more conscious about what it means to occupy a position of power, um, no matter how much you try to uh, break it down, to go away from it as an instructor. And then being on the other side of the desk, so to say, being a student and struggling with that imaginary hierarchy that exists, with that very real hierarchy that exists, that spatial regimentation of the classroom into um, a place which is near the board which means that you have access to writing material your ideas go to the blackboard people Uh, who are younger than you oftentimes, but not necessarily students in the class, are going to, to take notes of or are supposed to take notes on whatever you put on the board or on the PowerPoint slide, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this relationship that is you produce and the student consumes. And this was very much not the reality of what children did in my project. And over the years, I tried to actually remind myself that this is exactly what is happening in the classroom, that not everything that I produce is consumed by by my students, not in the ways that I expect them to, and also a lot of times they bring in conversations, topics, ideas that I don't even know about, and I always tell them, own your ideas, because you have done research on this topic in ways that I may never have. and You may have thought about this text in ways that I may never have. So um, in my silence and silencing seminar, for example, we have a lot of conversations about texts, artwork, um, time periods in U.S. history that I have never really worked on specifically myself. And, and my students... Help me learn. Help me develop as, as a listener, basically. So um, I really like the idea of you know the the, the title of uh, my silence seminar, which is because it also tells me as an instructor that sometimes I really have to shut up and listen. And I think that's that's a gift that these children basically over a course of a century uh, brought into my my life as an academic.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. We, we could all do better sometimes to listen to our students or learn from them. Um, yeah. Um, I know this book has only recently been published, but have you given thought to what your next project might be?
1: Well, uh, there are two ways of answering this question. One is short. Uh, definitely, I am working on two projects. Um, the longer answer is Um I finished my dissertation in 2016, and uh, I believe that I have my book contract in 2019, so everything was slowed down um, due to the pandemic, of course, and uh, the book came out in 2022, but uh, since 2016, I have been working on a number of projects. One is uh, looking at um, U.S. empire through the lens of um, digital games, and... uh, um, Um, I am currently working on um, the manuscripts of um, a book that I wish to um, uh, soon send out for um, reviews, and it is um, about a concept um, in um, game studies, which is In my understanding, my wording um, on playability and I have been working on that concept for a while now, again, uh, slowed down by the pandemic, Um, but in Germany, and I don't know if if you're aware of it, you um, Publish your first book, which is based on your dissertation, and then uh, you need to have a second book also um, written and published within a number of years after your PhD. And only after you have defended that project and have that book published, you can actually start applying for professorships to become a full professor and get a permanent position. So I am actually in uh, the the middle of that process of uh, working on my um, second book, um, the so-called Habilitation in um, German academia. And there I am looking at um, Poetry of Erasure, which is a subcategory of documental poetry. And uh, again, I've connect that very much to um, my um, life as a historian of the US, looking at poetry of erasure, um, particularly instances of it um, published since 2001, um, as scripts of empire, as um, texts, um, documents slash poems that engage with the idea of empire, try to get back
0: at the archives of empire. We will keep our eyes out for for those projects. Um, Thank you for coming on the show, Masha.
1: Thank you for having me. That was wonderful.